Hey, I'm Amory Robertson. I'm your host for Read Write Geek, a podcast for writers, readers, and makers of all kinds. Welcome aboard. Episode 13. When you found them, Graham shouts at Fallon, his eyes blazing. What do you mean you found them? You had these damn things delivered to you. How many days did you waste pretending you had no idea what they were? How many more people are going to be hurt because of that? What the hell were you thinking, Fallon? Give me a break, you self-righteous ass, Fallon snaps, matching Graham in both intensity and tone. This isn't what was sent to me. Get real. This was developed on Bartizel. Your people brought this with them when they came here, and you know it. You've always known it. What the hell were you thinking? Chapter 23 The two glare at each other as we stare at them in shock. It's Graham who blinks first. He turns his gaze away from Fallon and down at the spheres. He slowly begins stacking them back into a secure configuration. His shoulders slump a bit, and his breathing becomes ragged with emotion. I don't want to believe any of my people could have done this, he murmurs, not making eye contact with anyone. I still can't imagine who's responsible, but Fallon isn't wrong. This particular formulation and delivery mechanism were created on Bartizel as part of the company's weapons development program. Which you were running, Arden adds. There is no accusation in his voice, just a simple statement of fact. Yes, confirms Graham, which I was running until I understood how brutal they intended to be, and then I bowed out and started trying to make up for my mistakes. More explaining, I sigh, looking from Graham to Fallon. We're going to get that over with right now. Mabry, export the operations protocols for that flat and then disarm it completely. Let's reconvene at my pod since it's closer. Anybody have any objections? Thankfully, there are none, and soon we're gathering in my pod's common room. Dinner is almost over, but we managed to impose on Wenda's good nature to scrape together food for us. Hen is home again and helping now that Holly is awake and doing well. By his account, she'll be released from clinical tomorrow. The instant he sees Fallon, he hugs her tightly, which she only barely manages to tolerate. He then proceeds to thank her profusely and call her a hero, and I can almost see her icy demeanor fluctuate as he speaks. I'm glad I could help, I hear her say, sounding like the most modest person who ever walked a world. I would tease her about this if I felt like I had any soul left inside me, maybe another day. After we eat and the plates are cleared, Arden and Graham sit down across from one another in the overstuffed chairs by the fireplace. From the way they're leaning toward each other as they talk, the feud between them appears to be over. Arden is apparently satisfied that Graham's last secret is now out in the open. Fanny drops into a comfy chair in the corner of the room, and Mabry, still clutching the unauthorized electronics from the control console, sits despondently at the large shared table. Fallon, once she extricates herself again from the intensely emotional hen, takes a seat at the table as well, maintaining an upright and formal posture, tapping her fire engine red nails on the arm of her chair. Everyone looks at me expectantly. I look at Fallon. What? she barks. We're starting with you, I say. You found the spheres that were in the credenza? Oh, that. Well, yes and no. Awesome. I sigh heavily and fall into a seat across the table from her. Just tell the story and leave out the cat and mouse dynamics. Her mouth twists in aggravation. I don't know what you want to hear. Everything about the spheres. Everything, I say firmly, then stare at her until she starts to talk. About those specific spheres... I found them. Actually, I found someone with them. 
Who? Arden asks, his attention fully shifting to Fallon. I don't know. Tell the story, I say, as emphatically as I can muster. This woman is giving me a headache. Start at the beginning. Fallon harumphs, scowling at each of us in turn, her gaze finally coming to rest on Graham, who raises his eyebrows in expectation. All right, you know about the sprites already. I received information that three more were scheduled to drop three nights ago. I came out at about 23.30 hours and was heading for the Northern Ridge because I didn't want to miss them again. I gasp. You were the person I saw on the ridge? I never made it up there. You saw someone on the ridge? Fallon is suddenly as interested in my story as I am in hers. Yes, but go on, finish what you were saying. That makes sense, she says, leaning forward and tapping one sharp shiny nail on the rough wood of our communal table. It has to be the same person. Same person for what? Maybury pipes up. Fallon is about to answer when Arden waves his hand in the air. Finish what you were saying, then we'll have questions, he says. He looks irritated and worn, in short, exactly how I feel. Fallon blinks for a moment as if trying to reset her brain, which has already gone spiraling off onto a new tangent. It takes a moment, but she finally resumes her tale. Okay, I walked out here at about 23.30 hours, and I saw a figure creeping around your pod. As it got closer, I realized they had a significant number of those spheres and were placing them in precarious locations where they were likely to be broken accidentally by someone or fall and just break on their own. Fallon pauses to make sure we're all listening. My exhaustion has been replaced by an energizing feeling of absolute dread. Clearly, this person was up to no good, she continues. At one point, they appeared to consider tossing spheres through some open pod windows. They seemed particularly interested in a couple on the side of the pod that faces the ridge. I glance over at Arden. He's already looking at me. We both have a good idea whose windows those were. You already get that I know what these things are and what they're capable of, and I knew I couldn't let this happen. This person had a whole stack of spheres out behind your pod, so I kind of made myself obvious to them. Not like I had been watching them because, you know, potentially dangerous psycho with stasis-inducing weaponry, but like I was simply out and about, coming their way, happening upon them accidentally. You basically interrupted them, interjects Graham. Just like you're interrupting me now, Felon says imperiously, her eyes glittering at him. Yes, I interrupted them. The person, fortunately, was an enormous coward and literally ran away when they heard me coming, just took off and left the stack of spheres. I counted them. There were 30. I knew I couldn't safely carry them back to where I was staying or to the office, so I did the safest thing with them that I could. You surrounded them with a neutralizing agent, I say. You buried them in the sand. The picture of that night is coming together quickly in my mind. You grabbed a shovel from our courtyard, dug as deep as you could, and buried them out behind the pod. Yes, Fallon says. I thought they'd be safe there temporarily. I didn't tell anyone about them, but when I came back the next day, they were gone. You were seen, I explain. When I closed my window that night, I saw a figure up on the ridge. That was probably the person you interrupted. My guess is they climbed up there to hide from you, but saw you burying the spheres. Then it was a matter of getting to them before you could return. That makes sense, Fallon acknowledges. You had nothing to do with getting them into the credenza in your office? asks Graham. Fallon shakes her head. No, I was as shocked to see them there as you were. That must be where this mystery person decided to stash them, for what reason I can't say. Well, why did you claim they were yours? He presses. I didn't know if you understood what they were or how deadly they were. I was hoping to make you back off and leave them alone so I could deal with them. Of course, now we know they're your little babies, so obviously my concern was not warranted. She sits back at this point and folds her arms across her chest with a smug smile and an eyebrow raised in Graham's direction. Disconcertingly, Graham hangs his head. 
Can you tell us anything about what the person you interrupted looked like? I asked. Not really. It was dark. I already can't see shit in the dark, and the moons of this world might as well be non-existent for all the light they reflect, Fallon says. The person seemed to be wearing a large, loose overwrap of some kind, like a poncho. I can't say exactly how tall, but in general, shorter than Graham and taller than Mabry. They seem to have some bulk to them, but again, wearing a big overcoat, so it's hard to say. Male or female, Arden asks. Fallon shakes her head. I couldn't tell. Kind of a clumsy mover, but that doesn't mean anything. I'm not all that graceful myself. Well, that explains a lot, and yet it explains nothing at all, I murmur, except that somebody already wants to kill Arden and me, and now they probably want to kill you as well. Oh, I already know they want to kill me, she says with a shrug. That's a given, especially now that I'm a hero. She rolls her eyes imperceptibly at the word. I feel a sudden empathy. Look, I'm going to get some water. Anybody else? I ask, standing up from the table. It's more to break the tension in the room than to provide refreshment, but everybody raises their hands. Apparently, drama builds up a powerful thirst. I'll help, says Arden, rising from his chair and walking with me into the kitchen. And just like that, we owe our lives to Fallon March. I laugh hollowly as we take down glasses, a pitcher, and a tray from the cabinets. Stranger things have happened, he says, and might still happen, but at least you know you didn't imagine any of what you thought you saw or heard. Before I can respond, we hear a strange series of sounds coming from outside. It makes me think of something I haven't heard since I left Homeworld, a deep and sonorous rumble, followed by a muffled whomp and a melodious high-pitched sound of something fragile falling to the ground. The terrain shakes momentarily. If this were Homeworld, I'd be expecting a thunderstorm. But on Iona, we don't have thunderstorms. Arden and I run out to the courtyard, where we're soon joined by our podmates. The whole of Iona Town is outside now, looking toward the far edge of residential, lit by a glowing red and orange light from high above. The acrid smell of smoke pervades the air, and headsets are going off everywhere. Mabry is one of the first to get the call. Her face is deadly serious as she hurries past us. Without slowing, she turns and shouts over her shoulder, Get inside and stay there, all of you. The star parlor just blew up. We huddle in our common room and wait anxiously. It's not lost on us that had our evening gone according to plan, at least six of us would have been in the star parlor at the moment of the explosion. Fanny hails Alice and Mila for news of how her podmates are faring. Even though the star parlor is accessed through their pod, its position high up on the cliff has limited the impact of the destruction. The final verdict is lots of rattled nerves and rattled crockery, but no injuries or major structural damage to the pod. Iona's emergency services quickly gets the fire under control. Mabry hails me on private to let me know security has blocked off the star parlor for further investigation as the cause of the explosion is not yet clear. We'll figure out what happened here, she says, her voice steely with determination. I'm not going to let everybody down twice in one night. The bad news is all for Fallon March. Of her personal effects, including clothing, toiletries, and holo, almost nothing has survived. At least her research materials were safe in secured storage. And of course, Fallon now has no place to sleep. What will you do with me, she asks, looking genuinely worried. Am I going to get stuck in some filthy holding cell? I do some mental gymnastics and come up with a plan on the fly. It will require some shuffling around, but I don't think my podmates will object, and it's only temporary. I put my hand out to shake Fallon's, and as she gives me a perplexed look, I say, Welcome to Pod C1419. I hope you don't mind sharing a room with a lovely teenaged girl. In a little less than an hour, Hen has moved out of the room he shared with Holly and into the room Arden occupied with Parker the champion snorer. Fallon will now be Holly's roommate, something Holly is deliriously excited about when Hen lets her know. Fallon can't be thrilled with the arrangement, but at least she's not complaining about it at the moment. Arden will now be bunking with me.
Outside, the initial alarm over the destruction of the star parlor is calming down, and the people of Iona are resuming their evening routines. Fanny gets the official all clear from security, and she and Graham say their goodnights and head home together. Mabry will be tied up with her work team duties for hours. There's nothing else we can do, but I'm too tense to sleep, so I rummage in our surplus for a few minutes and come up with a change of clothes and some bed and bath linens for Fallon. Her face at the sight of the tan cargo pants, black t-shirt, and beige service jacket I hand her is a perfect visual representation of the word disgust. But she takes a stack of items from me without comment and lets me show her down the hall to her new sleeping quarters. You'll have some privacy tonight. Holly will be home tomorrow, I explain. Maybe we'll set up additional security to make you feel safe, and I've set our pod access to credentials only. It should be enough for one night. Almost no one knows you're here, and you're surrounded by people, so try to rest. She steps across the threshold into the room, taking it in for a few moments before she turns to me. Her face is tired and anxious. Why are you being so helpful, she asks. I realize I'm a total bitch. That's not going to change. Life on Iona is collaborative and interdependent by design. We work so closely together and depend so much on one another, it's just our nature to help, I say. Fallon considers this seriously. Well, I appreciate that, she says, hefting the stack of clothing and linens onto her hammock, but it doesn't make these clothes any less ugly. And it doesn't make you any less of a bitch, either. The flippant comment flies out of my mouth before I can control myself, and I hold my breath, preparing for Fallon's response. Which is laughter. A rich, musical, chiming laugh that is the last thing I expected from her. Good one, she says, and closes her door, still chuckling. I enter my room, now our room, to find Arden already stretched out in our hammock. His body posture suggests relaxation, but his face is anything but. Dark circles show beneath his eyes. His mouth is taut, and his brow is furrowed in perpetual worry. Tough night, I say, walking in and shutting the door behind me. He rubs his chin and lets out a long, weary breath. How's Fallon settling in, he asks. Is she being a pain in the ass? Surprisingly, not so much, I respond. I think what happened to the star parlor shocked her as much as it did the rest of us. We were all supposed to be there, he says, looking at me levelly. I know. So they might not be coming after only me, or Graham, or Fallon. They might be coming after all of us. I want to argue, but his face suggests this is an inarguable point. I try anyway. We don't know it wasn't an accident of some kind, I say. There might not even be a they, and if there is, they may want something else. This might just be a way of getting attention. Arden sits up, swinging his long bare legs over the side of the hammock and putting his feet flat on the floor. You don't really believe that, he says, eyeing me critically. His face is creased with concern. I sit down in the hammock next to him. I guess I'm willing to give myself the chance to believe that it's not what it looks like, I say. I think I have to do that for my own sanity— I hope you understand. He thinks about what I've said for a moment, then leans into me and kicks his feet, sending the hammock into a gentle swing. I do, he says. All the things I've seen in the last eight years have made me suspicious and cynical. It's what kept me alive out there. But when I'm with you, I want to be softer. I want to be optimistic and think it can all work out. That's the effect you have on me, and I think I'm a better man for it. But I'm not sure it's better for us in the long run. One of us needs to stay vigilant. He shifts back into a prone position in the hammock again and closes his eyes. His face, however, remains alert and tense, and when I stretch out beside him and he wraps his arms around me, I can feel the tension in them and hear the elevated rate of his heartbeat. I remember Fanny saying Iona had become a dangerous place. I didn't believe it then, and I still don't. But things are getting more serious by the second, and we've got to get a break soon, or that prophecy might come true.
Chapter 24 When the rising chimes sound, I try to snooze as Arden gets up and starts preparing for the day. In reality, I haven't been able to sleep longer than a few minutes at a time without the specter of what lies before me wrenching me awake. But I continue to feign sleep until I hear him slip quietly out the door. I don't want him to see how scared I really am. I open my eyes then, but don't get up right away. I'm scheduled to work on pod management duties today, so I'm in no rush. Instead, I lie in the hammock, listening to the sound of my podmates rising, moving around, eating breakfast, laughing together. They seem so unconcerned, so cheerful, so blissfully ignorant. I stay still until the sounds dissipate and everyone is left for the day. Then I get up and, running my hands through my untamed hair, walk over and peer into the mirror. The woman who looks back at me appears almost nothing like me. Her face is tormented, with glazed eyes that seem to be on the verge of tears, accented by drooping eyebrows and a severely downturned mouth. I shake my head at myself in disappointment. Just last night I was lecturing Arden about needing to be optimistic. With a sigh, I throw a towel over the mirror. I don't know who that girl is. I don't want to look at her anymore. I wait in our room until there's only silence from the common room before I make my entry. But the common room isn't empty. Fallon March sits at the table, drinking coffee and reading something spooling off a borrowed holo tablet. It doesn't help my mood that even wearing the generic black tee, tan cargo pants, and beige service jacket I handed her last night, she somehow manages to appear crisp and sharp and put together. Well then, might as well poke the bear. Good morning, I say, as I walk in with what I hope is a purposeful stride into the common room. Fallon doesn't look up right away, and when she does, she isn't smiling. There's a crap ton of lies flying around about what happened here last night, she says. This is the craziest company response I've ever seen. She tosses the hollow across the table to me and it lands in front of me with a thud. It's streaming Fallon's company communique channel and message after message either describes or deplores the, quote, actions of a small group of anarchists creating havoc on Iona. What the hell is this? I ask. You know what it is. You work for the company. What happens if there's social unrest on a planet that plays a very important role in the company's business plan? Well, they move in to restore order. Temporarily, of course. Of course. And what happens when there's no anarchists present if they've been reporting? They make some. I knew you'd get it. Does this sound familiar? Where have we heard this before? Bartizel, I say, my throat dry. And who do you think the leading candidates for this group of anarchists on Iona might be? Me, Arden... Graham, anyone who knows what's happening with Blue or about the effect of the sand? Correct, Fallon affirms with a scowl, and you can add me. I've been recalled. Recalled? I put the hollow down, aghast. But you just got started. I'm apparently no longer on the side of truth and justice. I'm not only being recalled, I'm being sent before the performance board. Her lips twist in anger and her eyes flash as she says the words. Performance board only ever means one thing— Censure, loss of status, and reassignment, usually to the most painfully inappropriate job available. Would your mother be able to intervene somehow, I ask? Oh, she's already all over me about that, Fallon sighs, leaning forward and placing her head in one hand while the other begins to tap a pattern on the side of her coffee cup. She wants to, of course, but I can't let her draw attention to herself that way. It would only magnify the scrutiny her project is already under, and this is too important. It has to move forward. Well, when do they want you back? As soon as they can get a transport here, but I'm going to fight it. I'm just not sure how yet. I should never have gotten up today. Things have gone from bad to worse. I'm sorry, Fallon, I say. Fallon raises one perfect eyebrow at me. For what? It's not like it's your fault. 
No, but I'm sorry all the same. Fallon shakes her head. You're a strange person, she says. I suppose I mean that as a compliment, but you need to be less sensitive. It's going to get you in trouble. Sensitive, I say. I nearly shanked poor Quinby last night. That's really sensitive. And suddenly I begin to laugh. It's the laughter of panic and tension that needs release, of pain and fury and complete exhaustion. But it feels good to laugh, so I don't stop myself. She stares at me quizzically for a few seconds, but then Fallon's lips curl up into a smile, and she starts laughing, too. We spend the morning sharing the space without interacting. She continues to monitor her communicate channel and occasionally send out terse, expletive-laden responses, and I manage to get our pod shares for food and water adjusted to accommodate our new resident. Around lunchtime, Hen brings Holly home from clinical, and Fallon is put through another round of emotional hugging and grateful gushing, which she bears remarkably well. Holly, who has the next few days off from school as part of her medical precautions, parks herself at a table next to us and simply stares at Fallon like a delighted puppy. When the teen bustles into the kitchen to fetch us more coffee, however, Fallon leans across the table and whispers to me, Is there anywhere else we can go? I don't think I can take much more adoration. Let's get your belongings moved over to our warren, I suggest. You're one of us now, after all. Fallon's mouth puckers in vague disgust. I'm definitely dressing the part, she says, looking down at her unremarkable clothes. God, that burgundy jumpsuit. I'm going to miss that. I hail Fanny so she can facilitate the transfer, while Fallon lets Holly know we'll be taking our coffee to go. We step out of the pod and into the dim light of Iona's early afternoon. Our eyes are drawn to what's left of the star parlor, perched on the cliff face at the far edge of residential. All that remains is a blackened hulk of twisted support struts and some sharp, soot-stained shards of high-impact acrylic that seem to leap up to slice the clouds. Wow, mutters Fallon. When she lifts her ridiculously unnecessary sunglasses for a better look, her already pale skin goes a couple of shades paler. I have a feeling she's not thinking about her burgundy jumpsuit anymore. As we walk toward the storage warrens, she tells me about the peculiar enzymatic process that makes the sands of Bardazel and Iona halt the stasis kicked off by Blue. The active ingredient is something native but very rare elsewhere, she says. We thought for a long time it was only found on Bardazel. That's why that planet was increasingly used for its development. It was considered safer for everyone because this reversing agent was literally everywhere. Safer except for the 200 people who were dosed and packed off to storage like surplus parts, I think, wincing. Someone fully in stasis is already immune to those processes, so the sand isn't useful in that instance, Fallon continues. The original antidote is kind of a rough entry, but it works, at least for those who consume the oral version of blue. But the transdermal absorption and aerosolized versions are trickier. Those processes and mechanisms are different enough that we're skeptical about the success of the original antidote on those victims. I don't have anything yet that we could use on people in stasis here, but I'm close. Close? I almost do a cartoon-style double-take. I thought you didn't have any to work on. Fallon proffers a sly smile. I said I didn't have any yet. But weren't you waiting for a package to replace the contents of the sprites you lost? Fallon's smile gets even larger. I may have fibbed about that, she says. I don't know whether to jump for joy or strangle her. I finally opt for something in between. Why in the world would you lie about something like that, I ask. Fallon smooths her hands against the sides of her standard-issue cargo pants, somehow magically making them look much nicer than mine do. Truthfully, I wasn't sure which team your friend Graham was on, she says, and sometimes I'm still not, but I'm confident at least that he's not the person I'm supposed to be tracking. Oh, good, there's Fanny with my stuff. Excellent. Before I can ask anything further, she's running across the sand toward the entrance of our storage warren, where Fanny is just arriving with a heavily loaded hover flat of Fallon's belongings. 
There are additional crates and packages, too, that I ordered from Good Security and Clinical. We enter the Warren and proceed down one of the radial hallways to number four, a large unit on par with number eight. We step inside, and I'm pleased to see that Auto Flats have already been here and deposited their cargo as requested. A makeshift lab is beginning to take shape. Fallon mutters criticisms to herself as she inspects the equipment we've obtained for her. This is workable, she finally says. What's the security on this unit? Mabry has already said it so that only two sets of credentials can open it, yours and mine, I confirm. And now we have additional security on the Warren entry thanks to our little adventure with Quimby last night. Only pod members can enter, and every entry will be tracked. Fallon nods approvingly. Let's get this ready, shall we? I'm game to assist, but Fanny begs off. Everyone is still jumpy at my pod, and I need to stay accessible and visible to help normalize things a bit, she explains. Between Holly's accident and what happened to the star parlor, it's a strange time. Fanny departs, and Fallon and I get on with our preparations. I try to steer our conversation back toward her earlier comment. You mentioned you were sent here to track someone, I say casually, unpacking some tools and containers from a small box. What? Oh, right, yes, and Graham is not that someone. Well, who are you tracking? A stubborn expression crosses Fallon's face. She doesn't look up from the equipment she's calibrating. That question is a bit more challenging to answer than you might expect. Let's change it then. Why are you tracking someone on Iona? As part of my job, or more accurately, my former job as operations security chief. I give Fallon an exhausted look, which she returns. Finally, she throws up her hands in surrender and drops her smug expression. It's all supposed to be on a need-to-know basis, but since I'm already considered an outlaw, I don't think I'll get into any more trouble for telling you, she says. Soon after I got here, I found data suggesting that the container that exploded and injured your friend was sent via a pass link from Bardizel. That means it was shipped first to an off-planet holding facility before the transferees moved here, then relabeled and sent to Iona. The operations security team thinks it was sent by the same person who was the mole on Bardizel and who dosed Arden's people in the compound. We're confident that person is on Iona now, but we can't find him. What do you mean you can't find him? We did detailed intake for every single person who came over from Bardizel, I say. I know, I've seen all your intake data, Fallon confirms. We think he came to Bardizel very late in the last couple of weeks before the mass dosing and went immediately to the compound. He kept a very low profile, and he's on the transporter manifest as boarding for Iona with the rest of the population, but that's the last place he shows up. There's no record of his arrival being processed, although no one remained on the transport ship or went anywhere other than Iona from Bardizel. So you know who he is. We know his name, Fallon says, frowning, but that's not as useful as you might think. I originally thought Graham was protecting him and was part of the scheme, but can see that his conscience wouldn't let him participate in something like this. Our mole definitely had inside assistance from someone because he wouldn't have been able to register here without a full working set of credentials. Someone had to help him get those. He left Bartizel as one person, but arrived on Iona as someone else. The trail goes cold somewhere in between. I stare at Fallon meaningfully, waiting. At first, she seems blank to my expectations, then rolls her eyes. Oh, all right, she says, her voice crackling with annoyance. You cannot share this with anyone else, not one person. We can't let this get out until we are certain where he is, because he literally could be anyone. The man we're looking for is Carrot Ardival. Ardival? I blurt out in surprise. As in Carloa Ardival? Yes, as in Carloa Ardival. He's her older brother. I can't even imagine my facial expression at this moment. 
How can you not find him? I ask, incredulous. Even if he's impersonating someone else, other people from Bartizel must know him, or must at least suspect he's not the person he's pretending to be. Fallon gives me a long-suffering look like she's about to explain to a toddler yet again why the sky is blue. He didn't simply get the credentials. He played the part, she says. We think he lived a double life, both at the compound and away from it. People on Bartizel who knew him as his assumed identity weren't surprised to see him come to Iona because they've never known him as anyone else. The only people who can identify him as Carrot Ardival were at the compound, and they're all in stasis. Our ace is his sister. If we can revive her, we can nail his ass to the proverbial wall. Don't you think it's likely that she got those credentials for him? I ask. Why would she rat him out now? From the records we have, they appear to have been estranged. Perhaps she helped him under duress or because she believed he sincerely wanted a new life. We can't know without asking her. A switch flips in my mind. I think I understand Carlo Ardival better than ever before. I think she knew what he was up to, both on Bartizel and here, I say, and Fallon stops rattling around with the equipment she's assembling and looks at me in a completely new way. She might have tried to talk him out of his plans, but failed. And she knew that made her a target after she arrived here. God, now it all makes sense. That's an interesting theory, Fallon says. I hadn't really looked at her behavior here since she wasn't even on Iona for 24 hours before she got dosed. She may have thought he would be coming for all the Bartizellians who wound up in my pod. Maybe he thought she would give up her secrets to them, I explain. We thought she was trying to dose the others. Winda literally caught her trying to pour something down Hen's throat. What? Fallon actually drops the mechanism she's been adjusting with a clatter and crosses the room to me in three strides. Wenda caught her doing what? I recount for Fallon the story Wenda told me, Carloa's strange statements about the food, the store of Bartizillian supplements she claimed to have brought, the liquid she was trying to pour down Hen's throat. Fallon hangs on every word and literally squeaks when I finish the tale. That explains everything, she's nearly shouting. Where are those supplies she talked about? Are they back at the pod? Everything she brought is here in the Warren, I say. What are you so excited about? Show me her stuff. It's not a request. That seems like an invasion of privacy, I mutter. Fallon goes off like a lander marking altitude. We are supposed to be dead, she says, glaring at me. I am asking to see the belongings of a woman who is in full-on stasis because she may have brought with her something that could help us foil the person who wants us dead. Privacy at this point is, has to be, secondary. When I don't immediately respond, she groans and looks up at the ceiling for a beat. When she speaks again, her tone is modulated and calmer, but still urgent. I don't think she was trying to dose Hen with blue, she says in a quiet, level voice. My gut feeling is that it was a chemical cocktail that makes the person who consumes it immune to blue. That's why the mole is so cavalier in handling the spheres. He's immune to what's inside them. That could be the missing part of the antidote for all the versions of blue, regardless of the delivery mechanism. I have the distinct impression that what March really wants to do is grab my head and slam it against the just-assembled lab table that's between us, but instead she stands in front of me, her arms limp at her sides, looking into my face with all the calm seriousness she can muster. I, in turn, walk toward the unit door and say, This way. Carloa's heavy black backpack is sitting exactly where it's been since the day I assigned her a cubby. Because we can't be sure it doesn't contain blue, I get a hover flat to collect it and float it down to the share. Fallon stares at it cautiously, as if rethinking the value of opening it immediately without any preliminary inspection. 
We should probably not open this in the public space for more reasons than one, she says. Number eight, I suggest. Why not? All the other deadly things are there. Fallon nods her acquiescence. I tap the coordinates into the hover flat and it sails down the appropriate hallway, stopping at the door and waiting for me. The instant I open the door, Mabry pings me on my headset. You going into number eight? She asks. I confirm that we are, and she audibly sighs with relief. Once inside, I heave my own sigh of relief when I see everything as we left it the night before. Spheres carefully stacked, wrapped in the elegant purple fabric. Hover flat lifeless. On the far side of the room sits the crate, conspicuous and silent. Fallon does a double take as we walk into the room. I didn't notice that last night, she says. What the hell? She starts to approach it, but I stop her. One thing at a time, I say, gesturing toward the spot where the hover flat has settled and gently deposited Carlo's backpack. Fallon turns her attention to me and crosses the room to inspect the sinister-looking black bag. We hold our breath as I depress the blue button in the pack center. Its straps were to life, dropping the sheath that enshrouds the entire bag, revealing a multitude of side pockets and chambers that all appear to be stuffed with goods. Another press retracts the flap covering the primary compartment of the pack, leaving it wide open. Fallon and I both lean forward to look inside. The lights of the unit are glinting off a number of containers made of crystal acrylic, each containing a sparkling clear liquid. Gingerly, Fallon lifts out one of the palm-sized teardrop-shaped vials and holds it up to the light. The liquid creates a prism effect, casting dancing rainbows across her face. Bam, she whispers, then casts a sideways glance at me and clarifies, exactly what I was hoping for. We empty the central compartment of the pack carefully, not wanting to potentially waste even a drop of this precious elixir. In the end, the central compartment of the pack contains 50 sealed vials. Each vial contains probably two ounces of clear, slightly viscous liquid. If this is the formulation I think it is, one vial would provide immunity for approximately a month, Fallon explains. So this represents either a short period of immunity for a lot of people, or a lot of immunity for a few people. I wonder why she didn't consume any herself. We originally believed she dosed herself in protest, I say. Maybe she did it to keep anyone from asking her questions about her brother. Or to protect herself from him, Fallon suggests. Kind of a preemptive strike? She's right. Either is possible, depending on how supportive of, or afraid of, her brother, Carloa, might have been. We break down the side pockets of the backpack and find them stuffed mostly with protein bars and food supplements, plus an odd array of items that suggest the bag was put together in a hurry. Gloves, scissors, strapping tape, and a small, delicate purple spray bottle that looks like perfume. I pull it out and cradle it in my hand. I didn't figure Carloa for the perfume type, I say. In a flash, Fallon snatches it away. That's not perfume, she says. I'm willing to bet the entire planet that's weaponized blue, and it's been used once. See? She points to a faint stain above the level of the liquid. My mind is spinning. If Carloa dosed herself with this small pretty bottle, she must have had an accomplice who put the bottle back afterwards. If someone else dosed her, that person got access to the warren and placed the bottle here. I shudder involuntarily, but my reverie of doom is interrupted by Fallon's voice. What the flaming dust is this? She's pulling a small electronic device from one of the pack's side pockets. As she lifts it, my headset erupts with feedback so severe I have to remove it. We should get Mabry over here to take a look at this, I say. Put it down for a second. Fallon does so, and the feedback subsides instantly. I pull my headset back on and ping Mabry. By the time she joins us, Fallon and I have transferred the vials of immunity serum, along with the small perfume spray bottle, into Fallon's storage unit. We leave the pack and its mysterious electronic device in number eight which, as it turns out, isn't mysterious to Mabry at all. 
That's a matte tracker, she says, looking at it nestled in the side pocket. We don't usually see those in personal effects, but you never know. Some people are super careful about their stuff. It caused holy hell with my headset when Fallon picked it up, I say. That means it's transmitting a signal, she says, her brow creasing. Hang on. She reaches into the pocket and lifts out the mat tracker. Immediately, my headset starts to squeal. I pull it off while Mabry picks apart the little device. There's no question that it's actively transmitting an alert every time it's disturbed, she says. But Carloa is in stasis. So who's on the receiving end of this signal? I trade glances with Fallon. My question is how did it get here in the first place, Fallon says. When was this pack placed in the cubby? I think back. It would have been the day after she went into stasis, I say. I put it into storage myself. Before that, it was sitting out in the share with the other Bartizalian stings, but only for a day or so. Who can get into the Warren? Only pod members? Well, only pod members now. We changed it after the number eight debacle. Originally, it was pod members and other storage administrators who are usually pod leaders. Pod leaders like you and who else? Fallon prods. Me, Macha, Polly when we was able, and later, oh, oh. I look at Fallon. Her eyes are sparkling fiercely. Graham, I say, feeling my stomach drop. But he wouldn't have, would he? That doesn't seem like him, objects Mabry. He can't be a bad guy. He took such good care of us on Bardazel. And he also ran a brutal company weapons development program on Bardazel and lied about that to us for months, I say. I don't want him to be responsible either, Mabry, but the possibility exists. The three of us stand silently around the backpack, staring at the mat tracker. Mabry's fallen sad expression mirrors my own. Fallon's is more of a look of triumph. He's our ticket to the mole, she says excitedly. I knew it. But I'm not so certain. I remember Graham's protestation that he is not my enemy, his genuine alarm at the sight of the spheres and the credenza, his self-condemnation of his role with the company's weapons program, and the fact that he was nowhere near Carloa when the twins found her, unresponsive and blue in our pod's common room. I don't think so, I finally say. Fallon looks at me like I must be missing at least half my brain. It all seems a little too convenient. I think someone wants us to believe that Graham is responsible. There must be something obvious that we're missing, but I can't quite sort out what it is. As I reorganize Carloa's pack, I take a moment to consider each odd, random-seeming item she brought with her. I feel like they're all clues, but we don't understand them. I load the bag onto the auto flat and send it on its way to Carloa's assigned cubby, leaving the mat tracker on the floor in number eight. I meet Mabry and Fallon in the share. As we start down the primary hallway toward the exit, I say to Fallon, we have to try to revive Carloa as soon as possible. No arguments. Her face shows her trademark annoyance, and as she crosses her arms over her chest in a defensive posture, the fingertips of her right hand begin to beat a pattern into the beige fabric of her service jacket. She might not like that I didn't accept her theory of Graham's involvement on its face, but for once, she's not trying to insult her way out of doing what we both understand is imperative. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying Nothing Larger Than These Stars. Check back next week for a new episode. Follow and subscribe so you don't miss a thing.